Hello there. Just a quick programming note before we start. This podcast was recorded at midday on Thursday before we heard Putin's uh, Queen Palace bomb Balmoral. Uh, death after more than seven decades on the throne leaves Britain and millions around the world in mourning and puts uh, the royal family and whatever comes next uh, at the forefront of our thoughts. Obviously, any talk about companies, markets and investing pales into insignificance in moments like these, but hopefully the following conversation is at best uh, a distraction for those who want it. Okay, into the show. Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. It's the 8th of September 2022. I'm Alex Newman, an associate editor at the IC, and stepping in for your usual host, Dan Jones, who is away. Uh, in fact, not only is Dan away, but we are without a studio and without our usual producer, John Rogers. But as listeners, you've all had a long summer getting used to general rudderlessness and a dis- distinct lack of normal leadership, so I'm sure you'll feel at home. Um, incidentally, this was the week where the UK finally got a new Prime Minister, although Liz Truss's appointment failed to arrest the continual slide in the pound against both the dollar and the euro. Um, that helped spark a 1.6% one-week rise in the FTSE All Share at the time of recording, though the FTSE 250, which is a bit more domestically focused, is is, is also up 2%. Uh, The sterling-denominated MSCI World Index is up 1%, but flat in dollar terms. Yields on government debt have continued to rise, most notably in the UK, where 10-year gilts now sit above 3%, compared to just 65 basis points a year ago, further opening up the spread over European bonds. Commodities have generally sold off for the week, with Brent crude down 9%, iron ore off 7%, um, though copper is flat and precious metals are a bit firmer. Big corporate news stories for the week include Toma Bravo walking away from a bid for cybersecurity group Darktrace, Melrose Industries announcing plans to spin off GKN Auto, which they acquired four years ago, and Cineworld finally filing for US bankruptcy protection. Big fallers uh, in the FTSE All Share this week include Associated British Foods, which today warned that the aforementioned strong dollar would hit costs and bite down on profits. Um, Shares in Bridgepoint, the private equity group, which listed last year, bounced 20% for no particular reason. Let's get down to it. I'm joined in a makeshift office studio in the City of London by the magazine's funds editor, Dave Baxter, who I'll be speaking to about two big pieces in this week's issue, follow up to our investigation into Hargreaves Lansdowne's fees and our annual roundup of the top 50 funds. And on the line, we've also got our company's editor, Mark Robinson in Surrey and our deputy company's editor, Julian Hoffman in Devon. Welcome to you all. Um, uh, We're going to start with the Emerging Markets Asset Manager, Ashmore, which is one both Mark and Julian have written about this year. Mark, you uh, covered the full year results last week for your column. Can you just talk us through what's been happening there? Yeah, well, the theme, I I decided to um, incorporate it into a a longer piece because obviously you you write about Ashmore, you're essentially writing about prospects for uh, emerging markets as well. Ostensibly, the, the figures themselves were uh, were negative, and yet the shares were marked up on on results day. I mean, it was a combination of uh, negative investment performance, but also some cash being uh, capital being withdrawal from. So AUM itself, I think, went down by about. Oh, let me see. It, it went down to sixty four billion, and that was a fairly um, 
that was a fairly steep fall. But on the face of it, I, I mean, I, I think I think this is a, a measure of the the wider market, really. Um, I've always thought Ashmore, the main negative point of, or the main question mark hanging over Ashmore was the the risk uh, linked to Mark Coombs if he ever decided to uh, walk away uh, from the company itself. Now, there's obviously many reasons why emerging markets have underperformed in recent times, not least of which uh, China's efforts to eradicate uh, COVID-19 and the impact that's had on uh, export volumes. But it also re reflects the, uh, the, the hawkish attitude of the US Federal Reserve as well by putting up uh, US interest rates. That's always a, a negative for um, the yeah. emerging markets because the, the debt situation is i wouldn't say predominantly but there's a large uh, exposure to us de denominated debt yeah yeah i mean there's, there's always lots of moving parts aren't there with with ashmore so it's kind of you've got the you've got the big picture story but then it's also really about kind of capital flow liquidity and moving between asset classes i, I mean just look at the results they and the, they they blame the poor performance and the negative fund flows on the ukraine war inflation and higher rates but they're also at the same time they're saying valuations in emerging markets have have never been better. So, is it are they just the victim of of risk appetite shifting here? Can I can I come in on that because I I just, I just looked at the um the stats for it. Actually, the the, the discount is really big. So it's like thirty percent below developed markets at the moment. So that's quite a spread, and I, I think almost unprecedented. I mean, you have to go back towards nineteen ninety eight with the Asian crisis to to find something similar. The situation might be slightly different now as well to previous uh, crises that we've had in, in Asian markets. I mean, if we can, you know, if we can qualify on that basis, uh, it's because a lot of the uh, the central banks in emerging markets actually started to ratchet up their rates ahead of uh, the Fed, you know, to get out in front of uh, that dynamic as well. And I, I don't, I, I haven't got a figure on this, but I'm. I'm told as a proportion of overall debt, the US denominated debt is, is lower than it has been in the past as well. So in a sense, they may be able to ride out these sort of structural problems uh, better than they have in the past. And it's it's worth noting as well that I was looking at um, some figures today showing that uh, capital uh, inflows into emerging markets have reversed. The prime out, outlier at the moment seems to be China for the reasons that I outlined before, you know, the, the reason, simple reason for it as well is that Asian stock prices are inversely correlated to, to oil prices. And uh, it could be as, as simple as that and crude's down by about a third over the last uh, three months. Uh, so that's, that's certainly a positive. Julian, I, I mean, to me, I think, and uh, you know, you you wrote a piece on on Ashmore. So at the beginning of this year, uh, the big picture story sort of makes sense here. That you know, it's over the long term. You would expect generally increasing capital flows to you know an underinvested sector to to continue. But I, I mean, in the short term, mm -hmm. the qualifier here is is kind of generally. And if all the world's investors want just to boost allocations to U.S. government debt, and everyone's getting nervous about inflation and a global recession for shareholders of Ashmore could there be a lot more pain from here do you think it's a difficult one to call I don't think that they'll cut the dividend the cover is about 1.4 at the moment so it's they've got a little bit of leeway and they've got cash haven't uh, they, as well and they, got, I mean they, they pour out cash <laughs> I mean every year they get free cash flow 
consistently of about 150 million a year. So, if, I mean, if they're buying up assets now at a 30% discount and those are generating a, an income that goes towards their bottom line, there's, there's no way that, that that isn't going to continue. I mean, the thing that's out of their control is what the US Fed does. And, and as soon as everyone, as soon as there's a crisis, everyone buys dollars. I mean, that's just just the way of the world, I think, at the moment. But I mean, Ashmore, you know, on a on an income basis, is not is not suffering in that sense. Yeah, Mark, I mean, the, the valuation uh, to me uh, looks compelling where we are in, in the cycle as well. I'm not suggesting for a moment that uh, emerging markets, stroke Asian uh, economies, won't uh, struggle with the rest of us over over the coming months. But they've been so heavily marked down over the last eighteen months or so. I think it's. Uh, I think it's really worth exploring the best we case. They've got about, Julian said they've got a lot of cash where they've got about 544 uh, million lying around at the moment. And that's when you, uh, and when you have a look at the enterprise, the uh, cash profit multiple, it drops, it drops to 3.7, which is about a th one third of the, uh, the five year average as well as with a, and you're getting in with a, okay, if they support that uh, dividend and if they, they, it hasn't grown over the last uh, uh, three years, uh, of course, but the yield, the forward yield, is about eight point four percent. So it's 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 certainly it's certainly worth looking at. I would say. Yeah, one wonders, I suppose, you know, obviously dependent on what um, Mr. Coombs plans to do, but um, consolidation always being the watchword in asset management space. If a slightly more deep-pocketed large global fund manager would want to diversify into to em that might that might be a, a question as well in the coming year or so um yeah it might be the final nail in the co coffin for aberdeen or someone like that <laughs> poor aberdeen we've kicked them kicked them enough uh, this year i think okay we're well, moving from one risky asset uh, class to uh, another wanted to talk about the outlook for smaller oil and gas companies so last week we spoke about the the changing shape of bp and shell uh, the giant integrated oil companies and this week we've had a small flurry of uh results from uh i suppose the kind of the the medium-sized uh portion of the sector so we've had numbers from golf keystone enquest and capricorn energy and um, mark maybe you could start with enquest which you covered it's, it's sort of the quintessential north sea player in that it's loved by retail investors phenomenally volatile and encumbered by a lot of debt I mean, this year's obviously been enjoying much higher prices, and you know we've got the news just before we started recording this that the PM wants to issue a hundred new oil and gas drilling licenses in the North Sea, which seems bullish for the sector. What's the situation and outlook from where you're standing? Well, uh, we've both covered the North Sea in the past, and the model, as it once stood, was that you had a lot of uh, EMP companies in there who were looking at very specific assets in the North Sea and UK continental shelf, uh, with a view to bring them some way towards production, uh, where they were snapped up by the likes of uh, Shell, BP, or Total, any, any of the majors. That was that was a sort of um, a symbiotic relationship that they uh, they enjoyed. That has withered somewhat because uh, the majors have taken a more uh, sceptical line on the North Sea assets, certainly within the uh, the British sector itself. So I guess the, the move by trust, and we haven't seen the, the, the full details of it yet, might improve that case. It might also improve uh, 
uh, prospects for the oil services companies as well. In terms of Enquest, as you mentioned before, I mean, it, it was a, it's been a, a really good period for them, boosted by the underlying commodity price. That is, that is a given for the sector as well. But what was typical or, uh, well, rather common within the sector, as you say, was the uh, the debt overhang. And they did it. I think they did pay down some debt this time around. But once you... Uh, once you once you uh, factor in uh, the bond issuance as well, it comes up net debt uh, as a proportion of shareholders' funds. It's uh, well 194 percent. So it's very difficult. You know when the and when the market value is at 160 million pounds, it it's pretty difficult to to see the investment case there. Even though the the backdrop may improve over the coming months, and I I, I would imagine that uh, applies to many companies within the sector too. Yeah, I, I remember Enquest, they had these horrible PIK notes, didn't they? These payment in kind notes, oh. which sort of accrues sort of interest on the interest almost, which they then have to cap- capitalise, which is kind of a sort of nightmare for all, all, almost forecasting where debt's going to be as well. But that that is interesting because that is sort of a legacy of the, you know, the last bust in the oil or major bust in the oil, oil cycle uh, in the, the sort of beginning of the second half of the last decade. Um, another name that is going to be familiar to lots of investors in in this space is Gulf Keystone, whose shares were pretty much wiped out in in 2016 because they had to sort of restructure the business. Uh, they had serious liquidity issues. I mean, the balance sheet there is now looking a lot better. It's even in a net cash position. It looks like according to the the half year results, and they're paying a dividend. I mean, they granted they operate in a very risky part of the world. Yeah, but yeah, but, tra- you know they're trading on two times forward earnings or something. Is is it actually a bargain now? Just just based on the numbers, certainly. But uh, they've always always had their attraction to Gulf Keystone, as far as I'm concerned. But the the overriding issue there is the geopolitical uh, risk there. You know, operating in in the Kurdistan or the Kurdistan portion of Iraq, uh, and given all the vagaries and uh, risk linked to uh, the local politics. Goodness only knows what goes on behind the scenes. I would hate to speculate, but uh, whenever you whenever you're operating in these type of locales, there you tend to get unexpected uh, either costs or or outages. I, I, but you know, I, I given the given the given the extent of their assets there, I always thought that was a you know a, a decent buy, but you know a high risk and a high risk end end of the industry as well. You know, yeah, it's still the nature of at this end of the oil and gas sector that you can take a short-term view almost or people do take a short-term view and, and do profit quite handsomely from it you, you remember the gulf keystone as well it was just a question of them um, being paid or, or the yeah. payment schedule from the, exactly. uh, the local authority there um and uh, it would be very interesting and illuminating to find out what, ha- what the sort of what goes on in the back room with these people you know yeah will we ever know i don't know i, I mean one one dividing line just looking at these these results in the last week uh, is the div- is the dividend payments you see coming from some companies so gold keystone do pay one enquest don't uh, capricorn energy which is sort of in this will they won't they union with tullow oil don't but they did pay uh, a big make, make a big return from their uh, successful arbitration award from india energy and i, I just saw today the the east med gas player uh, announced a maiden quarterly payout today and their shares have rocketed far beyond what you'd expect just from what at the moment is slightly a nominal uh, amount is is a kind of dividend the 
the sort of dividing line between investability do we think for these companies or or, or, or should you look beyond that I, I, I don't think you would necessarily characterize any of these uh, companies as income plays just because yeah. of the you know the performance is so tightly linked to the the underlying commodity price as well and uh, you know, with with the with the majors, for instance, okay, you you can make make a decent income argument there. I mean, uh, you, you know, Shell for many years up until the last few years was was a mainstay uh, of uh, dividend portfolios as well, the largest payer in the world, and and consistent with it. Uh, but I, this end of the market, no, not at all. I did I did notice as well that uh, Harbour Energy. Well, it's a slightly different beast now, of course, but uh, they announced a, an interim dividend too um, after you know they, they didn't have a payout this time last year. So yeah, I mean, in general terms, I don't think these are necessarily income stocks. You you would look more for uh, capital appreciation, please, um, it, it, by preference. And I, I think um, that the, uh, the the model that I alluded to earlier on, the fact that these were sort of ersatz uh, exploration arms for the majors when that held true the investment cases are much stronger because of the potential uh one-off capital returns but uh that's where yeah. we stand at the moment okay we could go on um let's instead move from um one set of high shifting prices to another um and bring in dave uh his inbox has been um if not deluged, then uh, peppered by Har Hargreaves Lansdowne customers since he revealed uh, a couple of weeks ago that the platform offered us a customer secret, cheaper fee, fee deal and uh, after they threatened to leave for Interactive Investor. Um, we'll get to the follow-up piece you've written this week, Dave, um, but perhaps you could sort of just briefly recap for some of our listeners yeah. what that deal was. Sure, so um, yeah, as we wrote a couple of weeks ago, um, there was a customer of Hargreaves Lansdowne, he wanted to move to Interactive Investor. He was tired of the uh, kind of higher fees that Hargreaves tends to charge. He had around 400,000 uh, pounds in it in a SIP and uh, Hargreaves kind of offered him a deal whereby he would be paying a fee of 0.25% on what he had invested in funds up to um, a million pounds. Um, and by contrast, normally, the charge is 0.45% on, I think, up to 250,000, and that's kind of tiered and falls beyond that. But yeah, Hargreaves kind of offered him that deal, but said, you know, this is a, a very special deal, don't tell anyone else. And- uh, especially, you know, especially on the Investors Chronicle. Yes, yeah, don't, 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 don't tell journalists. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's probably quite a big thing, but someone did. And uh, yeah, we had had a big, big response to the, um, to the piece. Um, yeah from various corners of the world and uh, a lot of kind of reaction to it on online. And as you said, we had a, um, yeah, not exactly a wave, but a, but a smattering yeah. of pepper. At the moment, yeah. 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 So we uh, so of those, you know, those readers who have got in touch uh, since the, the piece came out, yeah. what have people been saying? And is, has it given us any more clarity on, on how Hargreaves responds to instances where customers have tried to get better deals and, and how they approach mm. things a bit more generally? I think that's the interesting thing because it's still, I mean, I think some of the initial questions you ask from the original story are, to what extent is Hargreaves doing this? How many deals are they offering? What kind of, what merits a deal? You know, how valuable or asset heavy a customer do you have to be in order to kind of receive this sort of offer? And I suppose 
it's still quite a grey area. We've had various responses. Some people have said, you know, last year I threatened to up sticks and I demanded better fees and I received those better fees. Whereas some other people say a couple of years ago they tried the same thing and didn't get it. Mm. And these are actually, interestingly, one of those cases, one of those people who failed to, I suppose, kind of get a, get a better deal, Harbridge just wouldn't budget it. They actually had more money, at least overall, invested than the person that we originally reported getting offered a deal. Yeah. So, I mean, a question, and unfortunately, you know, haven't been able to answer it in an uh, obvious way, but the question I still ask is, you know, is Hargreaves perhaps now reacting to the, um, I suppose, the growing prominence of its rivals, like Interactive mm. Investor, the kind of straightened times in which we find ourselves, and are they now getting a bit more aggressive in terms of who they'll kind of offer yeah. that deal? Because I, I would assume to, to a great extent, it must depend on how valuable you are in yeah, your business, of course. aka how much money you have invested with them. Yeah, so I was going to touch on that in a, in a moment. I, I mean, just one, just to round out what you've written in the, the follow-up piece this week, yeah. you also raised the question around consumer fairness and maybe maybe risks is a, is a strong uh, uh, term, but, but some of the regulatory questions around consumer fairness attached to, to all of this, what might those be? Yeah, so we we originally wondered whether um, these kind of deals might fall foul of the um, what the FCA is treating customers fairly regime. You know, just as in the name, you know, you wonder is is a company offering two different customers different you know charges for effectively the same thing? Is that fair? And we we looked into this. Uh, we actually went to the FCA and. Um, Interestingly, the FCA pointed to, towards their um, new consumer duty regime, which again kind of focuses on putting customer needs first and treating them well. If you look into the FCA's, if you have a lot of time in hands and you look into the FCA's guidance document on the consumer duty, it is again mixed, but it's interesting because on the one hand it says they don't require firms to charge all customers the same amount. So you can, to an extent, run some of these deals, you can do what the FCA refers to as differential pricing. But there is some interesting additional detail there where they say, you know, if if a firm charges different prices to different groups of customers, they basically need to consider, you know, whether that is providing fair value yeah. for customers in different groups. So I suppose this is perhaps more relevant if you are a Hargreaves Lansdowne shareholder. Um, you know, there may be a question further down the line if Hargreaves is doing this to a, a significant extent, they're going to have to kind of justify this. They're going to have to kind of square that circle. And perhaps, I mean, it's highly speculative, but perhaps there is going to be some um, kind of regulatory pressure mm. further down, down the way. Uh, Julian, if I could sort of bring you in here, as partly with your hat as a financial services um, uh, reporter as well. I mean, I mean, Dave obviously raises that question there for Hargreaves shareholders in their defence or the investment case for Hargreaves partly rests on their their client retention, which has long been a thing of wonder, really. And and clearly, they provide a very trusted and good service to lots of customers. I mean, in your in your view, what's what what's the risk that in investment portfolio fees are vulnerable to this kind of Netflix cancellation effect, where you know, amid a cost of uh, cost of living crisis, anyone's customers are looking to all their outgoings and and trying to switch to cheaper alternatives 
if possible. Is that a is that a big factor at play? Do you think here with the investment brokers? Well, I think the the difficult thing is it's not like sort of choosing a electricity supplier or anything. I mean, there's yeah. only three of them <laughs> if you, um, with a of any consequence. So you see, you know, the main competitors are going to be Interactive and a, and um, AJ Bell. I think you can't underestimate how much inertia plays a part in how people manage uh, affairs <laughs> in this way. If the service is reasonable and um, they don't have any trouble with it, then people will generally stick with one of the three brokers that they use. And I mean, that tends to be what happens. I mean, it, it, if there is though pressure on the fees, uh, that that's probably more of more consequence for investors because these businesses base their attraction um, on the fact that they have very wide margins. And um, if there is evidence that they're going to have to do differential pricing of some sort, then that that's definitely going to make people think again about how how to value these businesses. You know, Hargreaves is so huge. I, I don't know whether you know, one sweetheart deal with one type of investor really makes a huge difference. I mean, but you know, it's it's more about how how people perceive them now. Are they yeah. In a sense, are they trying to desperate? I mean, are, are they sort of trying to put the fingers in the dam of a lot of people leaving? I mean, that might be the question yeah. that uh, that's open to interpretation. I suppose. Uh, I suppose to that inertia point as well. I mean, as you said, it's not like switching your broadband provider. It's it's an arduous process, isn't it, mm. for 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 investors to move their portfolios and and settle all their assets with a with another provider i mean that might not just be a case of inertia it's just the the systems as they're set up at the moment make well, it there's all these things like you know if you want to move a pension pot you know they insist on you getting 1200 pounds of financial advice i don't know why 1200 pounds specifically is a right a magic a magic number but it, you know, <laughs> there are lots of um barriers in the way of of, of doing that but um i mean, yeah fundamentally if they can mm. if, if people are are reasonably happy they tend to stay i think that's, yeah, yeah. It, it could also be a case as well where people would look at the um the charging structures more or less depending on the extent to which they're invested in uh, passive funds as well because when you look at the the typical payment rates there or the charge for uh utilizing those it may you may you know if you're if you're with Hargraves, it make you, you may make you look twice it is it is worth noting as well um i suppose in Hargreaves Defence, you can so they, they have their kind of charging structure for funds, um, and that's things like open-ended funds. But then if you're actually in a, an ETF or an investment trust, then that falls under their shares charging structure, which is much more competitive and they have they have fee caps. Um so I mean that kind of yeah, that works if you're in kind of passives because you just, okay. just move into an ETF. But then investment trusts are a bit more volatile, a bit more complicated than open-ended funds and there are people who will just prefer open-ended funds for their their simplicity. And... Okay, well, I'm sure we'll be following that story uh, closely over the, the coming months either way. And do get in touch with Dave if you have experiences around platform fee deals to share. Right, finally, we come to this week's cover feature, which Dave has also penned following weeks of research and work. Dave, the, the piece starts with you highlighting the difficulties of picking a good active fund. Um, but this being our annual top 50 funds issue, you've had to pick 50. Was it, uh, <laughs> was it a tricky uh, tricky month? Once you start picking them, you just can't really start. <laughs> yes and no. So I've um, this is the first time I've worked on the list. One of our, our colleagues has done it in the past. And 
they've perhaps made life easier because last last year we we halved the size of the list we moved from 100 to 50. Well, yeah it used to be 100 didn't it yeah it's yeah. kind of it, we've moved to a, i guess more high conviction just more concise list and the list was in relatively good shape there's some quite good names um of course many of them have been hard hit in the last year or so which is you know partly just uh some kind of crowded trades have been hit especially hard and just generally markets have been very difficult but um it's it's more yeah um in terms of kind of what we've been doing it's been looking at the list very closely but i'm sure we'll get onto this the the kind of changes have perhaps been more a few more than tweaks but a kind of yeah. you know a few shifts here kind of gradualist so. gradualist approach to yeah. Yeah, looking at the bulk of the list remains kind of intact but okay. we've kind of there have been a few kind of troubled names and then a bit a few structural shifts that we've brought in as well. okay so when you say we i mean can you just help any listeners to sort of demystify the process <laughs> and the, the the methodology because it's not just you who no. who's looking at these funds you've, you've got you've had some help yeah so we uh we have a, a kind of quite large panel this year it was eight people sometimes you know differs a little bit but eight kind of um different investment specialists so um kind of people who think all day, day about funds you know some of them focus specifically on investment trusts some of them focus more on open-ended and some of them a bit kind of more holistic in their approach but we have gone to all eight of these different panelists and we've kind of talked through the list with them we've gone through kind of what they like about the list whether they would keep certain names on whether there are any kind of problematic um constituents that perhaps we need to um kind of take out of the list and and more generally you know whether there are any great funds that we do need to think about producing and again you know the structural side are there, are there certain kind of traits of the list that we need to address yeah yeah i i mean it's an interesting process because you know we talk a lot about you know stocks and and companies and asset allocation on on this podcast and mm -hmm. write about them in the magazine that's never an easy job identifying you know shares that are going to outperform identifying investors who are going to pick the right shares is you know an equally opaque task sometimes and yeah. you know you're you're working with information that's often historical and you don't know what they how they're going to react to markets i mean there's been a huge amount to react to in the last year for these these fund managers you said the panel thought most had held up pretty well in the circumstances yeah um is this because fund managers are either rethinking some elements of their portfolios in a high inflation high interest rate environment yeah. and actually earning their crust for the fees that they're paid for active fund management i think it's probably actually you might say the opposite it's kind of more they're like they're sticking to their guns so right. i guess i guess a one way to view the funds is kind of they are tools in your portfolio and you want them to be doing certain things and you will try and diversify by having those different exposures so to, to I mean just sound like I'm shaming our own list now but like to, to go <laughs> through some some names that were hit especially hard you know one global growth fund that's in the list is Scottish Mortgage yep. anyone holding Scottish Mortgage last year will know that it's been horrific and you're you're just not going to want to look at that screen because you know yeah. over a year or so it's maybe down by nearly half isn't it yeah. or something um but but they're doing a very specific job they're targeting a very specific area and that's kind of as long as you treat it as kind of a, a highly volatile satellite holding and something that's very much leaning into that kind of growth style of investment mm. then that's okay but that's 
you you have to know what it is and you have to know what role it's meant to serve in your portfolio yeah and then um i suppose there are kind of other funds that do different things and the target parts of the market that have not done wonderfully the last year but have at least kind of held up better than those kind of really go-go growth tech stocks and that kind of thing yeah so i suppose the you know the annual element of this is in some ways a bit of a misnomer because we're not looking to necessarily reinvent the wheel you know for the, the mm. you know for whatever the style that might be in vogue from one year to the next that all said i mean you have you know look, looking through the selections that there's a bit more value focus yeah this year is that is, is that because the big picture has changed is it forward looking or sort of based on relative relative performance from you know from the last year and what we've seen in 2020 it's um it's just kind of with an eye to um providing i suppose different diversified options for your portfolio so if, if you are if you're an investor who likes to have some growth funds and some value funds then there are some categories where perhaps and it's very easy to do investors will find this with their own personal experience but it's, it's very easy to kind of like load up on those kind of quality growth names that have done so well for so many hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Yes. So more, yeah, I suppose in the name of diversification we've kind of introduced a few more cyclicals value focused funds and they yeah if we if we talk kind of performance they have um done really well versus the the more growthy funds you know some of them in in such a difficult year for markets some of them has been a case of making a small loss rather than making a 40 percent loss you know everything's like a, relative yeah yeah, yeah yeah having a two percent loss yeah. and then hopefully if if we do see more of a, a surging positive time for value then they'll they'll capture that yeah enormous number of ideas in that uh piece um which will be uh, available from friday in um all good news agents supermarkets etc um other things in there we've also got a new stock screen lots and lots of companies results um the usual comment and and content uh, from all our writers okay so that's probably all we've got time for this week um so let me leave by thanking dave julian and mark um, our digital editor Graham Davis for recording this session and to you all for listening and um, we'll be back next week for another episode until then all the best for investing in the markets goodbye <laughs>